get some help before we get going. So pray with me, please. Father in heaven, we, we thank you for this morning, for the time that you've given us to set aside to, to worship you with our hearts, with our souls, and with our minds. We pray, Father, that you would send your spirit upon among us to teach us, um, teach us about the history of your people, the history of uh, our, our people, in fact. Help us to understand the struggles, help us to understand the challenges, and through it all, help us to grow closer to you and to be pure in our faith. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay. Today we're going to talk about um, modalism. Modalism is a heresy. Do not believe in modalism. Okay? You clear? Great. Let's go work. Um, okay, what is modalism? Modalism is a doctrine which denies that the distinction between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is a real distinction. Modalists affirm that we must speak of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but claim that we must understand these to be different names for the one God. How do they get to this position? Well, on the one hand, there's the orthodox assertion that God is one. Um, we remember Irenaeus made a very big point of that in his defense of uh, Christianity against Gnosticism. He emphasized over and over again the unity of God. <coughs> Now, even before Christianity, the word Father has been applied to God. Um, and there was a movement that was happening in pagan thought, in Greek thought, to see all of the various Greek gods not really as different gods, but as different aspects of one God. And so there were those who were saying, okay, look, yeah, it's not like we really have like Zeus and Hera and Athena and all these other things. Really what we have is just Zeus, and when Zeus is looked at from the standpoint of being in charge of wisdom, we call him Athena, and things like that. Um, and so there was this movement to reduce even the Greek pantheon down to one, and that one god also got the name of Father. So there's long been this idea that you would call the divine substance Father. Um, now on the other hand, we have the equally orthodox claim that Jesus is God, it coming right from things that Jesus himself said. So as time went on, some people began to feel that these two ideas were in tension. If Jesus is God and the Father is God, are we not, in fact, confessing two gods? The only solution, they thought, must be that Jesus has to be identical with the Father. If they're really the one God and they're just different names for them, then there's no problem, right? You're still worshiping one God and everything's fine. Um, that's, the, that's the early version of it, um, the sort of non-nuanced version of it, right? Um, about a generation later, a man named Sibelius comes along, and he decides that, he, that this is not... There's been some discussion, there's been some argument, the church has said, yeah, that's not really right, um, these are the problems with that point of view. And Sibelius is like, well, I can... I think this is right, but you've got some good points here, so I'm going to just refine it a little bit so that you understand what we're talking about and understand how we're right. And so he, um, he says that... He starts from a recognition that a modal trinity, like we're talking about here, one where the persons aren't really different from one another, they just have different names for the same person, um, is necessarily an economic trinity. That is to say that God isn't eternally three, but is only expressed as three in his works. Um, further, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit ought to be understood as three different ways of being the one God, three different modes. Um, so that's that 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 was the that was the thing that the Illustrated Church had the most trouble trying to, to get around was what do you mean by that? You know, this this that's very imprecise. There are three different ways of being the one God. Well if you mean that, you know, 
they're three different ways of having the divine essence, but they're in fact three different people, then that, that's okay. That's actually orthodox. That's very similar to what we actually do end up saying. But if what you mean by ways, if, that, if the force of that term mode is to say that um, they're just sort of like, you know, sometimes I'm happy Junius and sometimes I'm sad Junius, you know. If that's the kind of thing you mean, then that's not gonna, that's not going to get it done. That's not strong enough. Well, what are some of the consequences of this type of view? What, what, ends up, what do you end up affirming if you affirm that the Trinity is not really three persons, but just three appearances of the one person? Um, one of the possible consequences is what's called patropassionism, which is the claim that the Father also has suffered. The passion part of that means, means suffering. It has nothing to do with romance. And pater for Father, right? So the idea that the Father would have suffered and not merely the Son. So if son and father are just different names for the same reality, then it follows that the following two statements are equally true. The son suffered on the cross. The father suffered on the cross. Early modalists seem to have accepted this consequence. They were okay with that. Well, why is this a big deal? Who cares? Um, remember the philosophical assumptions we talked about back on the week one. Emotions are emotion in the soul. Emotions are emotion in the soul. And uh, motion is only possible where there is some form of inequality. Motion, and therefore emotions, are thus a sign of imperfection. And it's not fitting to say there's any imperfection in God. So while it may seem very moving and touching to think of the Father's suffering for us, were the Church to make this claim, she would be subject to every manner of ridicule and scorn from every other philosophical sect. Um, it's It's... Somewhat similar to Christians in um, third world countries, especially in Africa today, um, thinking especially of Christians in the Anglican Communion, because the Western bishops in the Anglican Communion are very, very accepting and welcoming of homosexuality, and there's been all sorts of um, there's been all sorts of uh, controversies around that recently, as they talk about you know sanctifying gay marriages and consecrating gay gay bishops and all these types of things. Well, one of the challenges they're facing from within their own communion is that Af uh, bishops who are in these third world countries, especially countries where Islam is very strong, say, we can't do that because Islam says that homosexuality is wrong. And if we start preaching that homosexuality is right, they'll finally have a good reason to actually put us to death because it's against, homosexuality is against the law in our countries on religious grounds. And so they said, on the one hand, it's not safe for us to make these claims that you guys are doing. On the other hand, how dare we take up a moral stance that's less rigorous than the pagans around us, essentially is their argument. That's kind of what the church would have been facing if the church had tried to claim that, that God had emotions. There's just no, there's no way anyone in the ancient world would have heard that as in meaning anything other than God is not perfect. And that's not, um, that's not worth it. Other consequences. Exegetical problems. How to make sense of Jesus' prayers to the Father. I mean, is he just talking to himself, right? Is it for dramatic effect? Um, there are answers you can give to these to this question. I mean, there are I mean, there's a, we have a little bit of evidence of what some modal exegesis might have looked like, but it is something you have to deal with, right? You have you have to come up with an explanation for it. It's something you have to explain in the text that Orthodox Christianity doesn't have to explain. For us, it's easy because he's talking to a different person. But if they're the same person, then there's got to be something a little less transparent happening there. Now, Sibelius tried to deal with specifically with the Patripassionist objection. He argued that God does not suffer as father, but as son. 
So even though they're the same person, they're not in every way the same. For the Father morphs, if you will, into the Son for the period of the Incarnation. Likewise, in the age following the Ascension, God has become the Holy Spirit. So it's almost like there are these different stages in the life of God, and so up until the Incarnation, God can be Father, but at that point, God then needs to be Son, because that's what's required for the work that He has to do. And so, properly speaking, it's not the Father who suffers, it's the Son who suffers, because God kind of ceased being the Father and started being the Son. And then after the Ascension, the Son period was over, it was pretty short, and now the Father, now God is the Holy Spirit. So it's not really Jesus who comes into your heart, and he's gone. It's really the Holy Spirit. Okay. I have a question. Um, do we say, I just don't know this, do we say that Christ's suffering is purely contained within his humanity, or does it extend his divinity? That is what, that's what the Orthodox position is going to come to, is that his suffering is only within his humanity, because um, the, the divinity is not able to suffer for the reasons I just mentioned. Yeah. Yeah, I realize that's probably very different than how you've thought about uh, Christ before, and um, we can talk about that sometime. It's the, the the real the real issues that you're going to want to get at for that though are lie a little bit beyond the scope of what we're going to do in this class. There's a a little maybe a couple of centuries after we finish here, there was a big discussion about whether Christ had uh, one will or two wills. Um, so he says, "Not my will, but Thy will be done." Is that his human will? Is that his divine will? Is it some mush of the two? right? And uh, the idea that, that there was just one singular will in Christ was condemned as heretical. They said, no, he must have a human one and a divine one because his divine will must always be in perfect harmony with what the Father wanted. But his human will could experience a desire to pull away from that. It would always choose to remain united with that but it could experience a desire to pull away, and that's what accounts for the Garden of Gethsemane when he says, you know, not my will, but thine be done. Um, that's probably not the way that anyone, you know, any of you have ever thought about. It wasn't the way I thought about it before I came across that. I think, you know, I, I tend to think of Christ like myself as he's just got this mind, and he just thinks, you know, and it happens to be, it's a human mind, but it happens to also be divine, and so he knows a lot more than I do, and he's a better thinker than I am, but he probably just... His day-to-day -day experience of decision-making is probably quite similar to mine, if I could get inside of his head. Um, the church said, came to the conclusion that that wasn't really going to work because of some external philosophical pressures. It, it, it led them, it was going to lead them to say some things about the divine that would have been really, really um, unfitting in their context. Since then, our philosophical context has changed enough that we can say that God feels emotions, and everyone around us doesn't understand that to mean that there's some imperfection in God, that he's subject to outside influences that are, you know, causing bad things to happen in him and, and all of that. So, so when we say it, it doesn't have the same implications that it did for them. Yeah. Um, I have a friend, I haven't mentioned last week, who believes this, and I didn't realize you were going to be doing this this week. This is exactly what... He believes he's looking to start a church. My question is, is this how extensive? How extensive is this idea today? It's quite extensive. Um, a couple of places where you can find some modalists today. Um, certain strands of Unitarianism are modalism because they will accept the language of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and then explain it away as being one God. So that's very modalist. Um, one of the most famous modalists in uh, early modern history was the philosopher Hegel, um, who 
basically felt that the Trinity was the uh, varying stages of the actualization of the world spirit as it came to itself. And so he, did, he described all of history as the con God's consciousness, essentially, sort of God's daydream, and described the Trinity as being this process of God sort of waking up. And so Father improves when we get to Son, and then the ideal, what you want to arrive at at the end, is um, the Spirit. Hegel is the one who came up with the idea of what, you, what we understand today by the term dialectic, that you have a thesis and an anti antithesis, and then those gather the conflict between those two things, you come up with a synthesis. Um, there's a lot of, the whole system is just modalistic, and there's a lot of this type of thought that underlies the whole thing. And that's been an extremely influential philosophy in the last couple of centuries, and you'll find vestiges of that in many different disciplines. And in, so if you come across, you, know, you come across assumptions that are determined by Hegel in different parts of science, in different parts of psychology, and philosophy, and theology. So, um, so those are two places where you might see that. But yeah, it's definitely very much alive within the church. Oh, of course. How was that affected their idea of uh, the reincarnation, uh, the resurrection, salvation, and all that? I just, I mean, you don't talk about that here. Is it any different than what the Trinitarians believe? Not necessarily. It does not necessarily follow that because you think that the Son is the same as the Father and not a different person from the Father, that you would then have to modify your view of what the work of the Son was. Um, it, it depends to some extent on what you th how you think the Incarnation, specifically Christ's death, was effective for us. If you have one of these views such as that it was um, a ransom that was paid to the devil, that still works. But if you've got a view where, you know, it's a, it's a sacrifice offered to the Father or an atonement that's offered to the Father or, or anything like that, then it really won't work in a modalistic frame point because there isn't, <clears throat> there isn't a Father there for him to be offering it to anymore. Um, it just sort of shakes up the picture a little bit. But, but, you know, with some clever exegesis, you can make it. You can make any sort of soteriology, any sort of salvation story you want hang on to it. Um, you can pull it off. Julius? Yeah. Uh, are modalists forced, like, what happens with everything that God does before the Incarnation, when the Incarnation happens? I mean, are they forced to say, uh, God the Father isn't kind of taking care of the world anymore? I mean, what, yeah. why does the world go to crap outside of Right, right. And that, that that's related to a, <coughs> a Christological question that, that is often asked, which is to say, Imagine the baby Jesus in the, in the manger. Is the baby Jesus in the manger ruling the universe, actively ruling the universe, making sure that atoms continue along their path and don't collide with each other and, we, and things like that? Or is he just a little baby in the manger, right? And so it's very fun to imagine this little baby sort of sitting there, just kind of like, you know, <laughs> controlling everything. Um, I mean, they all they control it with their parents' lives anyway, but... Um, <laughs> <laughs> and and so yeah so so modalists have to modalist options are, tend to be something like that you know where Jesus is doing all of that from down here or also kind of a universal autopilot that guy can just kind of say okay continue along your course and that's fine there was more of a sense probably more of a sense then than now that guy was had to actively control the universe all the time you know not that it was I think we tend to think that God created the universe according to certain laws, and you know, unless something, unless He does something to interrupt that, it's going to keep going along those laws now, right? 
But back then the idea was much more that he he kept it going. There are only laws because he continues to force the universe to work the way it's supposed to. Um, and that's what motivates the kind of objection that Craig's asking about. Um, so to the extent that they bought into that, they would need to come up with some strategy like one of the two that I mentioned to, to account for that. Caroline. Oh, well, if well-meaning evangelicals say that the thought of the Son and the Holy Spirit is like ice and water and steam, is that normalism? Yep. <laughs> you have to be careful about your analogies for the Trinity. Most... Every Trinitarian analogy is going to wind you in either modalism or possibly the other heresy that we're going to talk about today. Um, another, uh, so, so there's a problem with, with Sibelius' attempt to resolve the Patripassionist objection. Right? He says, okay, look, the father doesn't suffer. The father becomes the son, and then the son suffers. Yes, they're the same dude, but it's not, they're not in every way the same, so it's not right to say that the father suffers. So... We're good. It's a nice, subtle, philosophical thing. It's, it's very good. People like it. But, um, so while it may avoid patripassionism, it still involves a change in the Godhead. He changes from being father to being son. And so ultimately it becomes subject to the same criticism. It's not just motion and emotions that aren't allowed in God. It's change. All right, so there were two different terms that we had at the beginning that, that had to apply to God in, in this type of philosophy. One was impassibility, which meant that he couldn't suffer. And the other was immutability, which meant that it couldn't change. Right? Change can only be for better or for worse. God can't get any better. Why would God want to get any worse? Right? God actually can't want to get any worse, because if he does, then that shows there's already something wrong with him. So, um, so he can't change. There's nowhere to go. Okay. Other, other thoughts on modalism? Yeah? Just a quick thing on that. Do we have the assumption today that change is always for better or for worse? No, we, don't. no, we do not. We think change just happens. You know, it's it's A and now it's B. Is it B better than A? Maybe, but not inherently. Right. Which means that today for us to say that God can change would be different, would have different implications. There may still be implications we don't want to deal with. There may still be bad theological implications, but they would be different ones. Other thoughts? No? Great. Okay, now, who... Who's, who's the big responder to modalism? You may be noticing a pattern here. There's what's wrong and then who responds to it. Well, our, our responder this week um, is himself something of a problem in Christian theology. Um, his name is Origen, and it's not spelled like the word origin, like the origin of the species, but um, rather like this, with an E instead of two I's. Um, he was a theologian of profound influence. His role in church history is problematic. He was deeply influenced by late Platonism, and in fact studied with the same philosophical master as Plotinus, the father of Neoplatonism. Some, some kid somewhere should write a dissertation about what, what that guy must have been like, to have spawned, on the one hand, Origen, on the other hand, Plotinus. Looking at those two guys and thinking back to what the one teacher they studied under must have been like, that would be a really fascinating study that someone should do sometime. Origen is unique in the history of the church. He was condemned for his teachings three centuries after his death. The church then kind of forgot about the condemnation and continued to celebrate him as one of her great theologians. This was really confusing to me because, you know, I'm studying theology and I'm like, you know, I'm reading Origen and I'm like, this is crap, you know? And then I see, like, you know, we condemn the teachings of Origen and I'm like, yes, that's what I'm talking about. And then I get to the Middle Ages and they're like, well, as we know, the great father Origen. And I'm like, did you read the other thing? What happened? Did they get lost? Somebody misplaced it. Um, 
part of how this was possible was, I mean, it was a, not everyone agreed, not, there, there were some political issues surrounding the council where Origen was condemned in the first place, but, um, but also after this, they went through and they, and they burned a lot of Origen's works that contained the most heretical stuff. The remaining works, which were really, really awesome, except for being a little weird, um, they then <laughs> submitted to an extensive process of editing to make them more in line with the church's teaching. Over a few centuries, people forgot that this wasn't what Origen had actually written, and so he got credit for the more orthodox traditions that were not, in fact, what he held. Something to say, George? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, Origen is also really fun because he was incredibly prolific. There are stories told about um, how we know, we, we, according to various lists that we have to the ages, we, we think that he's responsible for somewhere upwards of 300 books. And there are stories told that in his old age he would be dictating four or five books at the same time, just have a bunch of scribes hanging out, writing everything down, because um, it wasn't enough for him to work on one at a time. So uh, we can all take some encouragement from that. So, origin responds to modalism. He insists that the Father and the Son are two different existences and have been from all eternity. He goes quite far in this direction, stating, We are not afraid to speak in one sense of two gods, in another sense of one god. That's pretty far. Now, the basis of this strong insistence is the claim that the Son was not created by the Father, but begotten by Him. This makes the Son radically unlike us, and necessarily of the same nature as the Father. Right? When you have a, when you have a kid, are you, your parents, are they all human? Everybody's got human kids? No inhuman kids in here? Right, that's good. Okay, good. Right. If, you were to, if you were to give birth, and it were like a goat, there'd be some questions that would be asked there. You would, you would have some questions for your spouse. Um, the doctors would have some questions for you. You'd be famous. Um, Oprah would have some questions for you. <laughs> right. It's not normal. Yeah, that's what it means to beget something, is that you beget something of the same nature as you are. So when the father begets something, he's going to beget a son who is of the same nature, which means he's going to be divine as well. He's not going to have a human son or a goat son or anything like that. Um, so that's the basis of saying that you know Jesus has to be... He has to be a God, but also another God, because you don't give birth to yourself, so that doesn't make any sense, right? Now, this next point is really fun. According to Origen, when he was a young lad, he was, a little, he was very zealous, and he was a little too eager in his interpretation of the Scriptures, a little too literal in his interpretation of the Scriptures. And he came across the Scripture where Jesus is encouraging you that if your right hand offends you, cast it off. And young man Origen was struggling with lust. And so... Being the good man that he was, he, he, he took action, he took his fate into his own hands, and he castrated himself. He went on to become the father of allegorical interpretation of the scriptures. <laughs> he also, um, perhaps quite helpfully for any other young man who may have considered this, um, points out that having the inability to follow through on lust does not in any way release one from lust. Um, so it didn't really work. <laughs> um, so he goes on to become, he goes on to, to found this way of reading the scriptures non-literally, and uh, he writes a commentary on every book of the Bible, every one of them. Not the 66, the bigger Bible. That's right. The Deuterocanonical works, all of those too. That's right. Some stuff that we don't even think should be in the Bible, he wrote on those too. 
Okay. Um, and a lot of what he's doing is going back and re-explaining things non-historically, non-literally, um, A, to make it more consonant with his platonic view of the world, but B, just to kind of make sure that, you know, people don't do what he did. Because it wasn't good. But it really helped out the choir at my <laughs> Okay. So that was the good side of origin. Now let's talk about the dark side of origin. What's bad about origin? Well, here's a good one. Origin believed that souls existed before they were born into this world. Indeed, existed from all eternity with God. He believes that the entire spiritual realm, which is human souls and angels, um, is co-eternal with God. Okay. So, our glory, the whole purpose of our existence at that time, was to contemplate God. So we did all day, was we thought about God. Somehow, we got distracted, and in that moment of distraction, we fell away. And so that's really what the fall is. The fall isn't so much wrongdoing as a lack of right-doing. It's the fact that we stopped paying enough attention to God, and so we fell away. When that happened, um, matter, flesh, came into existence. Both the, mad, the flesh of our bodies, but also then the rest of the world is a place for our bodies to live in, because physical bodies need a world. Um, in time, we will return to our former state, but it may take us several attempts to get back there, which means, yes, Origen believes in reincarnation. This is something he got from Plato. Plato got it from Pythagoras. Pythagoras probably got it from Persia. And so it probably has roots in uh, an ancient Eastern philosophy that was ultimately to issue in Buddhism. Okay, so that there's a very strong likelihood of a connection there. As may be expected, the bodily resurrection causes some trouble for Origen. He has to reinterpret it in such a way that what rises isn't really so much physical as spiritual. He basically... He never denies the doctrine, but he reinterprets the doctrine such that he is, in essence, denying the doctrine. He doesn't really believe that our physical bodies will be resurrected, because it doesn't make any sense in his view. The physical bodies are the sign of our distance from God, and so they can't be united to us when we are united to God in that primal unity he wants us to return to. Is creation not good? Not really. It's not evil, not so far as, as some of the other folks we talked about have been, but it's not good. At, at best, it's a lesser good that has to be overcome. So we would allegorize that? Yeah, yeah, that's right. <coughs> you can kind of see, you know, he's, so he's got to now reread Genesis 1 through 3. He's got to reinterpret that so that, A, we can tell that story in his way, right, that the fruit and all that kind of thing was really just, that's an allegory of our not paying enough attention to God. Um, but also... Uh, so that he has to reinterpret it because God keeps saying, hey, look, it's good, it's good, it's good, and he has to say, no, it's not, actually. So he's got to do some fancy footwork there. You haven't come across this at all in your daily lives, have you, this type of thought? There's, um, people often say, there's a danger in studying church history that you hear all this stuff and it sounds so very, very familiar. And you think to yourself, wow, there's nothing new under the sun, there are no new ideas. This is really untrue. Um, modalism today is very different than modalism in the 30th century. And if you don't understand that, you won't be able to respond to it properly. If you start responding to contemporary modalists as if they were Sibelius, they're, they're, they're going to tell that you don't understand their position. And it's not going to be effective. So 
all the things that happen in the cycle of Western civilization between when an idea comes up the first time, when it comes up the second time, and the third, and the fourth, those are all modulations on those ideas. And they make an enormous difference in what they mean and what they're able to accomplish within the society. Remember that ideas don't just come out and then people believe them or not and that's the end of it. Whether people believe them or not is a matter of their eternal destiny. It's a matter of the salvation of their souls. It's a matter of the direction of our society, whether it's a place where the gospel can be preached and heard and understood, or whether it's a place where the gospel will necessarily sound like nonsense. And all these changes that happen between the various incarnations of these ideas are changes that affect how they are going to change that, how they're going to change the type of climate uh, in which the gospel is going to find or not find reception. Tim. The um, allegory. So whether to, where to put that piece of information, and I, I almost made a third category uh, to put it under. It goes both ways. Um, allegorical interpretation of the scripture is good. We all do it at some level, and um, it is it's an extension of the type of typology of the Old Testament that is that we do when we go and we look and we see um, prefigurations of Jesus in the Old Testament. One of the famous ones of these is to say that. Um, you know, Moses in the desert struck the rock, and water flowed from the rock. And to say that, that that was Jesus. And God wanted man to just speak to him, and that grace would flow forth. But instead, we, we struck him, or we made it such that he needed to be struck. And so that prefigures Christ and the grace that would come through Christ, but also the way, the manner in which that grace would have to come through suffering. Um, that type of reading, whether you buy that one or not, that type of reading of the Old Testament is something that the church has engaged in since Paul. Um, well, since Jesus, in fact, he does a lot of that too, this too. Um, and Jesus is telling us, hey, it's not just an accident. I'm, I was talking about me when I said that back then, right? Um, and so what Origen does is Origen makes us more sensitive to this and um, allows us to be more subtle about this. But at the same time, that's not all that the Bible is. The Bible isn't just saying one thing but meaning another. The Bible is also saying one thing and meaning that thing. Right? And Origen loses touch with that sometimes. And so, yes and no on allegorical interpretation. Right, And the, and the Middle Ages is, is going to develop this sense of interpretation where every passage will be read both literally and allegorically at the same time. And then Reformed theologians are going to get really uncomfortable with that and are going to say it's really not that. And then as that idea develops into evangelicalism, you're going to come up with what's called the plain sense of the scripture, that you just, what the text says that any normal, non-educated person or reasonably educated person could pick out, that's the meaning that God intended because it's supposed to be open to everyone. You're turning it into Gnosticism with your crazy, arcane interpretations. Right? So there's a, there's a struggle that is before origin and that continues long after origin as to where do you... How literal and how allegorical do you get with the interpretation of the scriptures? Okay. So you said, so you said at some point you got to where all passages have literal and allegorical. Yeah. <laughs> so the argument for why sometimes we need allegorical interpretations are like things in the Psalms that say God has wings or something like that. You think, you think he doesn't? What's that? You think he doesn't have wings? Uh -huh. That's I guess saying. not. Careful. <laughs> 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 it seems allegorical. Well, um, I mean, 
Yeah, some, some, I mean, you know, so some passages, it's harder to come up with an allegorical meaning for than others, like lists of names and numbers. And some passages, it's harder to come up for a literal meaning for than others. Sounds like a challenge. Sounds like fun. You live in a monastery. All you have to do all day is work on this. There's no girls, there's no nothing. You, have, you, have, you pray and you work on this. So, heart is good for you. All your friends, you can't talk to them. Because you're only allowed to talk when you're praying. Okay. Next. Origen also believed in universal salvation. Everyone would ultimately make it back to union with God, even the demons. The demons were in the same boat as we were. They were angels, and they fell away by distraction. Um, they, got, they were better than we were, and they got more distracted, so they fell further. Right? But ultimately, they're going to come back too. So all of us are going to be back together, united again, one big, happy family. It's a really nice thought. It's wrong. It's bad. Maybe not the demons part, <laughs> but it's increasingly common. I think it's probably worthwhile to point out to point out something, which is going back to something that Mark said. Why were the early Christians being killed? They weren't being killed because they worshipped Jesus. They were being killed because they worshipped Jesus alone. Okay? Now... So think back to everything you've ever heard about the early church and about problems with people denying Christ and then wanting to come back and the church having to figure out what to do with that. Or people denying Christ and then claiming that they're still Christians. Or wanting to worshiping the emperor because they're being forced to, but then saying, no, it's cool, I'm still a Christian. The early church's response was, you are not a Christian. You are not in the church. Because you are ashamed of the gospel of Christ and therefore Christ is ashamed of you. Because they said it's okay to worship other gods than Jesus. Because they said it doesn't matter in the end, there are other ways to get to God. This isn't a minor issue between liberals and conservatives people. This is the major issue of our time. This is the place where the church is slowly and surely turning away from the gospel of God. Insofar as we are allowing religious tolerance and saying that it doesn't matter what you believe, you can still get to heaven. If there is no hell, everyone's going to go to heaven. We dishonor the sacrifice of the early Christian martyrs when we teach this. We need to think about that. George? Yeah, was Orange's point a, um, a kind of relativism that, well, it doesn't really matter. It's hard for me to imagine him saying, it didn't really matter what you believed, it'll all come out in the end. Or was he saying that somehow all would be converted? Yeah, it was more that all would be converted. Um, even, yeah, it's, yeah. It, it, it's unclear it's unclear how necessary Jesus is for that conversion. Um, ultimately, we're talking about a, a conversion of thinking here. It's very platonic in that you know you need to get your mind right, and then you'll be able to see better. And as you see better, you'll be more freed from this bodily nature in return. Um, Christ is certainly a major means by which that is carried out, but... Um, a lot of origins work didn't survive, and what we do have is, is, is still mountainous, and it's, and it's there is scholarly disagreement as to what the exact role of Christ is in that, how necessary Christ's role is in that process of coming back to vision. Um, but because yeah. I could imagine, I mean, I don't know whether this is another heresy or something, uh, that there is a kind of um, you know the Christ preaching to the demons in heaven, and that there's actual 
an opportunity for conversion, that they're still bounding the need of Christ, and mm -hmm. that Christ alone is the only way, right. but that uh, it's more atemporal. Yeah, there, there, there is this sense of, I mean, very early on, the Apostles' Creed acquires the additional language of he descended into hell, which is not in the earliest forms that we have of it. Um, but, and so, you know, one of the things that, one of the early interpretations of that is that he went as preached to the spirits who were in prison, right? And who are those spirits in prison? Is that, is that folks, faithful Jews who came before Jesus, and so they couldn't go to heaven yet because Jesus wasn't there, and he came down and said, hey, it's me, I'm the one you were looking for, hey, Isaiah, how's it going? Follow me, right? <laughs> or was it unbelievers, non-Jews from before? Or was it other types of spirits? Was it former angelic spirits who are now demons? Um, the church has never held that latter position, but you could certainly try to try to put that in there. So, universal salvation doesn't automatically mean that you don't that you believe that salvation can come outside of Christ. It may mean that you think that it's just inevitable that Christ will succeed. This is one of the major ways in which this idea is being put forward by Christian theologians today, is that they say, look, God is a lover. Now, a successful lover, the result of a successful lover is to win the heart of the one whom he loves. Now, God is the best lover imaginable. I mean, wow, talk about Casanova. Right? God is of infinite power, and God's got all the time in the world. Given infinite power and infinite time, God will wear you down with his love, and you will come back. Maybe not in this life, maybe you'll you know, go to hell, but God's going to keep loving you in hell, and at some point... You're going to say yes to this love, because it's just so strong, it's so overwhelming, it's so powerful. Right? Very attractive. But wouldn't you have to go back to John 17 to get your focus back, where Jesus' focus was only on those whom the Father had given him? It depends. It depends on how you interpret it. Within the Reformed tradition, we believe, you know, there's the sense that those are called who are going to be saved, and if you're not called, it doesn't matter how much you want it, you can't have it. Right. Um, that's, that's a minority voice in the Christian tradition. Most of the Christian tradition, historically as well as numerically, has felt that um, God is actually calling me everyone. And it's, you know, we have a part to play in that, which is that we have to accept the call. Um, so if you, in, in, in a sort of reform framework, you could, you could still say, well, only those whom God has called has come, will, can come. God has called everyone, and so eventually everyone will come. You could still work a universalism into that. And it's... Very, very common. The Reformed tradition has actually been, um, for some reason, for this precise reason, in fact, has been prone to produce theologians who believe in universal salvation. Um, and uh, whom the one is celebrated as the greatest theologian of the 20th century, Karl Barth, who is a Reformed theologian, was led by his reflections on predestination to universal salvation. So you can still work it in to, to that system. And if you have the other system where you believe that God calls all but it's up to everyone to respond, you can obviously work it into that system as well. So you can kind of fit that idea in anywhere you want to. That's what makes it so powerful and dangerous. Joe? So what would Origen do with, like, uh, Romans 9, where uh, Paul talks about, you know, it's the whole idea of God's sovereign election, and does not the potter have the right to make some for noble use and some for destruction? Origen would do the same thing that, that other non-reformed but orthodox theologians would do, which is to say that um, those those that are made for destruction doesn't mean that it's well. Sorry. Let me let me let me let me back up. 
That's an incorrect statement. Origin would allegorize it. That's what he would do. Yeah. He would say, well, let's, what, is, what is meant by destruction? Is not destruction the continual being caught up in the cycle of dying and being reborn? So destruction unto salvation? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's right. That's right. <laughs> yes. Well, is this also part of where the Catholics then believe that with in purgatory, to make sure that you've got one more chance to make sure that you're no, going to make it? no. In, in purgatory, you're saved. You're, you you you've passed the bar, the first bar of saved or not. It's just that you didn't. You were just barely saved. I mean, you were really. It's not fair that I lived this great Christian life all the way through for like 60 years. And then some really awful person on their deathbed is like, I'm sorry, and then gets to go to heaven too, right? So purgatory kind of balances out the scales and says, well, he's going to get to heaven, but he's got to take the long way. He's going to have a lot of stuff he's got to get through before he gets there. But it's not a second chance. The, the, the Catholic theology is that your chance is before you die. And that, that's, part of the, that's part of the question in the, in the church's reflections of salvation is, does... Does being in the body or being out of the body make a difference to salvation? Does something qualitatively change at death such that you've lost your opportunity? It's worth thinking about. And, and that, that then will affect why or the angels and why the demons do or do not have an opportunity to repent as well. Okay, um, what else? Ah, this is a good one. The Son and the Spirit are secondary gods to the Father who alone is God in the truest sense, S-E-N-S-E. -S -S -E. You know, you can edit and edit and edit, and it just doesn't work. <laughs> uh, God is o only the Father is God in the truest sense, because only the Father is unbegotten. To be, to be the begotten God is not as cool as to be the unbegotten God, right? Clearly a, a, a ranking there, right? If you were kids in the playground, <laughs> I'm God, I'm God, I'm God. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm begotten. Yeah, well, I'm unbegotten. Ooh. <laughs> you, just got, you just got one up. So, so, as a result, Origen felt that we shouldn't pray to anyone except the Father. We shouldn't pray to Christ and we shouldn't pray to the Holy Spirit because they're not really as God as they could be. They're God, but not as God as you want them to be. Hey, Jesus only prayed to the Father, so let's follow his example. Yeah. <laughs> That's related to this next point. So he believes that there are, there are certain spheres over which the different persons of the Trinity have authority. Um, they have the sort of special realms of authority. Okay. So the Father's power is over all of reality. He's naturally got authority over everything. The Son's power is over all rational creatures. Angels, demons, humans. The Spirit's power is over those who are being sanctified. Now, to be fair, Origen believes that we all will eventually be sanctified, and he may believe that all things have souls, and therefore that all things are rational to some extent, so the distinction might not work out too much in the end. In other words, if, if it's true, first step, if it's true that even stones have some little spark of divine soul in them, then they might get to count as part of rational reality and so would then fall under the Son's dominion. And if it's true that all spirit will return to God in the end, 
then it's all going to be sanctified, and so it would all fall under the Holy Spirit's dominion. So it's possible that he's not, he may not be saying that the Son and the Spirit's the, the extent of their power is limited, but at least it may not actually be limited, but it is at least logically limited. It's at least, it's a, you can at least imagine the possibility that there's some type of reality that is not rational and therefore that the Son would not have power over. The Father would, and the Son would not. Or that there's some reality that is not going to be saved, like matter, and that the Father would have authority over that, but the Spirit would not. Okay. This error is called subordinationism, because you are subordinating the persons of the Trinity one to another. You're making one of them of more value, of more worth, than another of them. Um, and and origin isn't just like the Father and then Son and Spirit, but it's even Father, Son, and Spirit. This is a this is a very biblical church. I love this. This is good. <laughs> um, new heaven and new earth, and then he's gonna say, "Well, what does what does earth mean?" Heaven he's okay with because heaven isn't doesn't have matter anyway. But what does he mean by earth? Why is it called new? It's called new because it's a spiritual reality for our new bodies, which aren't really bodies because they're not really physical, and so we're off again with the allegory. Right. Anything you don't like. Just change it a little. Right? You keep the same words, change the meaning. Another liberal strategy that we face today. Right? Um, I've been in so many churches where they, um, they confess the Nicene Creed because they believe in church history and they believe that they need to be in continuity with church history. But they, they can go through and explain every line of the creed in such a way that no line of it means anything like what it's supposed to mean. And you, and you want to ask, why bother using it? Because they want to call, them Christ, they call themselves Christians. Why do you want to call yourselves Christians? Ah, that's the question. Come up with a new name for yourselves. Go start your own church. Like your friend. Go start your own church. It's okay. Just don't call it a Christian church. That was, that was the, the, that's the reason we had heresy. That's the reason we declared things to be heresy. It's so that it would be so people wouldn't get confused about what's Christian and what's not. That's another thing we've lost. We don't declare things heresy anymore, and so people hear crazy ideas. They're presented to them as being Christian ideas. Why? Because the deceiver wants people to have the wrong idea about Christianity. People, Satan doesn't want us to know what Christianity really is. He doesn't want us to have good belief because if we do, we'll believe and we'll be saved, right? And so things need to masquerade as Christianity. Right. Angels are bright still, though the brightest fell. Though all things foul would wear the brows of grace. Right. Evil things want to look like good things so that we accept them. And the truth, the, a lie is cloaked with a little bit of truth so that it's appealing and attractive. But when we can't say anymore to the world, this is definitively what it means to be a Christian, and this idea particularly is out, then who's to tell them what to believe? Who's to tell them whom to trust in telling them what's Christian and what's not? We just had this in our church. We have a group of people who wanted to have something called the Jesus Seminar mm -hmm. come to uh, do a program. You don't want the Jesus Seminar to come to your church. Well, <laughs> you know, that sounds like a very good program. Doesn't Jesus it? Jesus Seminar. Hey, yeah. Yeah, I love Jesus. Really <laughs> so some of us did some research on it. Mm -hmm. And so we stood up and said, 
no, yeah. we do not want this at our church. And um, we had a lot of uh, conflict, but yeah. it was stopped, canceled, moved. <laughs> a Presbyterian church down in Austin, Texas is going to have it now. So, <laughs> but, but another church is having it, but and it is going to go on. But we have stated, no, this is not what we believe. They do not believe in the virgin birth. They do not no, they believe don't. in. Uh, I mean, they they just take it and make yeah. it. Play. And it's a real problem. Mm -hmm. Is the fact that that sounded like such a good program, mm -hmm. Jesus Seminar. Yeah. But it is not, so you have to be so careful right. and research right. who is teaching and what are they and what teaching. They're teaching. Bravo. Bravo. That's, that's wonderful. Very encouraging. Um, test every spirit. Right? Yes. And it's really not about what we're talking about, Junior, so you can tell me that you want to move on. That's cool. The book is Shaq. I don't know if it's a lot of people. Uh, do you mean is there are there people who are pointing out that this is not a great book? Yeah. There are. There are. You can find them out there. Um, it's, um, that's part of our problem, though, you see, is that because whenever anything comes out, <coughs> some Christian group will stand up and tell you how it's not a great book, right? I mean, Harry Potter, right? I mean, I, I have a book on my shelf at home that, that, that talks about Harry Potter and the Bible, and its whole purpose is to show how Harry Potter should not be read by children because it's, it's of the devil. I have it on my shelf for the purpose of example, because I went to school with a lot of people who who had who were exposed to this kind of theology, <clears throat> and I often get asked by my friends about these kinds of things. I've had a lot of conversations with my friends. Well, what do you see? So whenever one of these controversies comes up, they say, "Well, what do you think about this? You know, how do you think Christians should think about this?" Um, so when something bad comes up, some Orthodox Christians are going to stand up and say that's bad. When something good comes up. Some, some heretic Christians are going to stand up and say, that's good. When something neutral comes up, orthodox and heretical Christians are going to stand up and say multiple things about it. Whom do you trust? Right? That's why the teaching is so important at this church. That's why there's so much teaching at this church. It's because you have to have a firm grounding in order to be able to discern. But it was also helpful back in the day when, when we had our, uh, our church leaders, our bishops, standing up and saying, no, that's not actually Christianity. Not just to help the Christians know whom to trust, but also to help the pagans who were interested in Christianity to know what it was they were interested in. Right? So many people who are on the road to Christianity get turned aside into one or another of these things. Right? Now they're Jehovah's Witness, or now they're Unitarian, or now they're this or that. <clears throat> so close. But no. That kind of brings up the issue of uh, how do we approach the church fathers if we wanted to say open some books and read them? Uh, and this is a perfect example. Um, to get a balanced view, you have to do your homework first before you open up their writings, right? Yeah. <coughs> well, what do you have to say about that? Or, origin is unique. Most of the other heretics, their writings were did not survive uh, that period. And so most of these things we actually know about through the Orthodox Christians who are reporting on them and then telling us what's wrong with it and what we should believe instead. Um, partly because at certain times those writings were actually attacked and destroyed, 
and partly because um, they just weren't being copied. When you know, because once people figured out they weren't orthodox, they stopped copying them. Um, so, if you were to go through and start reading in the early church, you would not come across a lot of heresy, um, except as it's being explained to you, this is a heresy and you shouldn't believe it. Um, Origin is unique in that way. Um, not unique, but in, in, a, in, a, in a minority anyway. Um, but but there's, a, there's a mountain of material. You know, reading in the Church Fathers isn't like reading in Dickens. Um, there's a, the, the, the sort of classic original language versions of all these texts is like 225 volumes, and it's not complete. Okay? So there's a, there's a lot going on there. But, but at the same time, there's a lot of it is, a lot of the, there, there are these highlights, these high points that are quite accessible. You know, there are a couple of books of Augustine you can get into that are just, you know, very accessible. And you can kind of trust Augustine, you know. Irenaeus' work is, um, there's really only one book of his that we have. And, um, and really, if you jump to book five, you'll get to all of this, his constructive good stuff. You know, the books one through four are largely ex- describing the Gnosticism that he thinks is so bad. Um, if you read it, there's, you often find collections of the earliest Christian writers after the apostles um, under the heading of the Apostolic Fathers. Um, and Mark talked about some of those. Those are very accessible, usually fit within one little penguin volume. And, um, and you can trust those guys. But, but ultimately, you know, what have you been taught here to do with crazy ideas? You've been taught to bring it back to the scriptures. You've been taught to bring it back to the scriptures as interpreted by the church. Right? <coughs> so... That's the that's that's what you need to do. Yes. Um, speaking of bringing it back to the scriptures, I oh was just wondering if you could talk a little bit about what these people were using as their scriptures to prove what they were saying, and then what the church was like, what scriptures <coughs> they were using to refute that, or how they interpreted it. Oh, I see. I know that's kind of a big question. But it kind of is, but but you can you can I mean you can sort of put the list together a little bit on your own. Think think through think through the, the Bible. Just cast your mind over the Bible. And think about all the times where the oneness of God is asserted. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Things like that. And that's like those are the kinds of texts the modalists are going to latch on to and they're going to proof text from those. Right? Um, no one is good except the Father only. Things like that. And anything that can sound like one God and maybe even kind of seem to be a little bit down on Jesus, they're going to latch on to those things, right? Whereas um, Origen is going to latch on to everything where you really see the distinction between Jesus and his Father. He's really going to dig into the Gospels and say, Jesus is praying to someone else, right? Here, Jesus is in tension with that someone, not my will, but your will be done. Or, you know... Glorify, or glorify thy name in heaven. And then a, a different voice coming from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it. Right? These are the types of scriptures that are going to line up and toss at one another. In the words of the Archbishop of Canterbury, they lob scriptures at one another like hand grenades. All right, I want to make a, a larger point here. I want to step back for a second about these two different schools we've looked at here and note a tendency that's starting between the Western Church and the Eastern Church. Okay? Um, Western theology is beginning to really emphasize the unity of the Trinity, the oneness of God. So they were a little more open to modalism in the West. 
Um, I don't mean that they thought, hey, maybe it's not a heresy, but I mean that modalism got more adherence in the West. More people believed it because it was closer to the way the church was talking about God in the West. Um, in the East, they were emphasizing the distinctions of the persons of the Godhead more. And so there were more subordinationists in the East, right? More folks who felt that the Father was up here and the Son and the Spirit are lower somewhere. Um, again, not that the East said this was okay and orthodox, but that that was closer to what the Eastern Church was teaching. It fit better with what the Eastern Church was teaching, and so people who believed that found a happier home and found it easier to make converts in the East. Okay? Um, this is the problem of Trinitarian theology. How do you express both the unity of God and the distinction of the persons without in any way weakening the other thing? Right? It's not easy. It took the church a long time to figure out how they wanted to go about doing this. So these two trends are ultimately going to be united into an orthodox doctrine of the Trinity, and that's going to happen in our time period. But for right now, it's, I just wanted to point out that this tension is developing. Okay? And you can, see the, you can see the providence of God in that, because if, if there weren't the tension, if only one of these positions were unified over the whole church, then it would uh, probably have won out, and we probably would have lost the doctrine of the Trinity, it would have collapsed into a modalism or a subordinationism. Alright, we're going to end there. So let me pray, and then we will go to worship. Father in heaven, thank you for the guidance of your spirit in the church. We thank you that when you promised that you would send the spirit of truth, that you are true to your word, and that you lead us into all truth. Father, give us wisdom, and give us a prayerful spirit to test all other spirits. Help us, Father, to reduce everything, to lead everything back to the scriptures, and to attempt not to read the scriptures in the way that we want to, not to come to the scriptures to judge them, but rather, Father, to come to the scriptures in order to be judged. And Lord, we pray that in that judgment we may stand. We pray that you will strengthen our hearts and that you will prepare our hearts and minds for worship. In Jesus' name.